Great. So we're in Acts 27. Quick update of where we've been so far. Most recently, Paul has been in prison. He had, after travelling to Jerusalem, he had been imprisoned, and he has had a couple of trials now. He's had a trial in front of a Roman governor. He's had a kind of trial in front of a Jewish client king. And he has been forced at his first trial, because he could not get a fair hearing, he has been forced to appeal to Caesar, as was his right as a Roman citizen. At the end of chapter 26, actually the new Roman governor and the, the Jewish client king, Herod Agrippa, have a conversation together, and they decide that Paul hasn't actually done anything wrong, and he could be released, but he has already appealed to Caesar, and so they're in a bureaucratic bind. They can't just let him go. He's appealed to Caesar, therefore he has to go to Caesar. So at the beginning of chapter 27, he's decided to set sail for Italy. And then what follows is apparently the longest and most complete narrative of sailing in the ancient world that we have preserved. Um, we know, apparently ancient historians know, a lot of what they know about sailing in the ancient world from this chapter. So there we go. That's great. It's very interesting to learn about sailing in the ancient world. Um, as I've read up on it a bit more, I've discovered that Essentially, it was an extremely dangerous thing to do. Um, lots and lots of shipping was lost. And um, in particular, you did not sail in the winter at all on the Mediterranean. When you did sail, you hugged close to land as possible and only nipped across little bits of open water if you absolutely had to and the weather was good. So that was interesting. I learned a bit about sailing in the ancient world. But I imagine that you have not come here this evening to learn about sailing um, particularly not sailing um, Greek and Roman triremes of the first century AD, um, because that is a subject of very limited interest to most people, um, particularly as we have no triremes and are a long way away from the Mediterranean. So what is this chapter doing here? Why have we got such a lengthy and detailed description of sailing around the Mediterranean filled with hard-to-pronounce place names which you ought not to spring on a reader five minutes before they have to stand up and read. Why is this here? Why has Luke put it here in this book of Acts? Well, I'll be honest, I think humanly speaking, part of the reason might be that Luke was there and it was exciting and interesting to him. So you'll notice at the beginning of chapter 27, it was decided that we would sail for Italy. And that is the clue that Luke, the author, is with Paul on this voyage. And so probably what he is doing is writing up his journal of the trip. It's his travel notes. Okay, great. Still not that interesting. But one of the great things about narrative in the Bible is that it tells us what God is like. And behind these travel notes, we see the figure of God. Now, when I was um, a younger man, somebody who was trying to teach me how to teach the Bible um, said to me, you've got to be very careful with biblical narrative. Um, you mustn't teach any points of doctrine from narrative. You must only teach them from 
uh, the New Testament epistles, and things like that. And then you can use narrative as examples to back it up if you want. Um, that was terrible teaching. Um, because most of the Bible is not somebody writing down their ideas and reflections about God. Most of the Bible is somebody recording what God did in their lives or in the history of Israel. And that is what is going on here. Now, I want to suggest that's really valuable because I can say things like, God is sovereign. And that is true and gloriously true. But unless we get a bit of narrative to illustrate what that means, it could mean an awful lot of different things. So, imagine I could say to you, God is absolutely in control of all things, and he loves you, and he is good. Therefore, it follows logically that nothing bad will happen to you. I could say that. And it might seem to follow logically from the idea of God's sovereignty and God's goodness. But in the narratives of the Bible, we see what God's sovereignty looks like. It gets unpacked for us and displayed for us so that we don't have to kind of logically work it out with our concepts. There it is, right in front of us. So I want to suggest that the headline over this travel journey is this, God is sovereign. And then I want to give you six, but don't worry, they're quite brief, points unpacking what I think that means according to this chapter. And the first three might sound controversial and hopefully the second three less so. But I'm going to stick with the first three because I think they're in the chapter. So what does it mean according to this travel journey, this travel uh, journal of Luke's? What does it mean that God is sovereign? Well, first it means three things that we might not have expected. It means that God is the God of delays. Paul was pretty keen to get to Rome. If you flip forward a couple of pages into uh, Romans chapter 1, when Paul writes the letter to the Christians in Rome, he writes uh, in verse 13, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. Uh, Verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Paul was dead keen to get to Rome. He was the apostle to the Gentiles, and Rome was the centre of the Gentile world. He wanted to get there. Now, admittedly, he may not have wanted to get there as a prisoner, but that was the route he was on, and he wanted to get to Rome. But by the beginning of chapter 27, He's been in jail for over two years. That is a long time to be stalled. And then, as he does start to get going, it was decided that we would sail for Italy. Great, we're on our way again. Stuff's moving forward again. Weather conspires to hold them back. It seems that every single wind is blowing in the wrong direction. And they are delayed and delayed and delayed. We made slow headway for many days. The wind did not allow us to hold our course. Much time had been lost. 
they were seriously delayed. And God was in control. Our God is the God of delays. We don't like that because we are people in a hurry. We want to get places, we want to do stuff, we want to achieve things. God is in control and he isn't always in as much of a hurry as we are. He could have got Paul to Italy years ago if he'd wanted. He's the God of delays. He's also the God of detours. On the way across the sea, Paul ends up zipping round various little islands that he had no intention of going anywhere near. And then he winds up on another island, Malta, which is just way out of his way. He doesn't want to go there. To be honest, nobody wanted to go there. Um, when you uh, read in chapter 28 that um, the islanders showed us unusual kindness, um, the islanders um, is a translation of the barbarians. Now, we shouldn't think um, that they were all, you know, hairy, uncivilized folk, but it does mean that they were outside of the kind of the realm of Greco-Roman culture. They weren't really at the center of the universe, let's put it like that. They were out in the sticks. Their little island was of no significance. And yet Paul is there. Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, with all of his gifts and his abilities to preach, all of the miraculous signs that accompany him wherever he goes, winds up on a little island in the back of beyond to which he never intended to go. Our God is the God of detours. No doubt that God is in control of this whole process. And yet it doesn't take Paul where he wants to go. It doesn't take him by the most direct route. It pushes him up a beach in Malta, clinging to a plank. Our God is the God of detours. Again, we don't like that. We don't like it because we like to make plans. Even if our plans are just, I plan to do very little and be comfortable and that'll be okay, thank you very much. We like to make plans. And we don't like to find our lives spun off in directions that we didn't intend. But our sovereign God is the God of detours. It's the God of delays, the God of detours. He's also... The God of disasters. Let's face it, this voyage has not gone well from the start. They weren't getting anywhere. The winds were against them. Sailing had become dangerous because it was after the Day of Atonement. That means uh, it's already probably late October. Late October is not a good time to be out on the med in a Roman trireme or whatever type of vessel this was. It is dangerous. People don't sail at this time of year. And in fact, Paul says as much, I can foresee that we're all going to drown if you do this. And he is overridden by the majority, including the pilot and the owner of the ship. The owner of the ship um, probably just wants to get to Rome so that he can sell his goods. 
and is prepared to take a bit of a risk to get there on time. And anyway, if you're the centurion, who do you listen to? One of your prisoners or the sailors? So they set off. And it is a disaster. They get a gentle south wind and they think, made it, let's go. And then a hurricane sweeps down. And they are in trouble. They can't steer. They've got no view for days on end of the sky. And so they can't navigate because the stars are all they've got to navigate by. They can't control the direction or the speed of the ship. They end up throwing ropes around the ship, which is um, to, to passing ropes underneath and up the other side to try and hold it together. Um, and they probably also tied one from the front to the back to stop it from snapping in two, because you don't want that if you're on a boat. It is all going horribly, horribly wrong. They don't eat. The sailors try to abandon them after they finally run aground on these sandbars within sight of land, but unable to get to it, and with the back of the ship being destroyed by the pounding surf. And through all of this, God was sovereign. He's the God of disasters. It has, without a doubt, gone horribly, horribly wrong. But God is in control. I suppose there aren't many of us who uh, like disasters, um, except possibly in the movies, although even then I find it a bit stressful. But we have to recognise that our God is in control even of things that, from our perspective, are just complete disasters. It would have been, you know, quite right for Paul to say, this has gone horrifically wrong. And in fact, he does launch a slightly snide comment along those lines. Um, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Uh, <laughs> a little bit of I told you so um, there. And, you know, justifiably. But the point is, whilst it's all gone wrong on a human level, God is still in control. That doesn't actually mean that we have to say, oh, it's not a disaster after all. It is a real mess. But behind it and over it and underneath it, around that mess, is the sovereign God who is working out his purposes. It's an encouraging and a discouraging truth that our God is the God of disasters. If anybody says to you that um, stuff can't really go wrong in your life because God is in control, I don't think they've read the Bible very carefully. Disasters happen to God's followers quite regularly in Scripture. Real disasters, they suffer. But the encouragement is that behind all of that is a God who cares and who is working out his purposes. It doesn't make the disasters go away, but it kind of puts the disasters within a bracket. Like 
everything within this bracket can be horrible. But it all fits into a bigger picture in which God is in control and he's good. And that can be hard to see at the time. must have been hard to see for Luke and Aristarchus and, and the rest when they were on a ship being broken up by the surf. Not only were they on a ship being broken up by the surf, but they were surrounded by soldiers who were within inches of killing them all because the soldiers knew that if the prisoners escaped, they were dead men anyway, so they may as well kill the prisoners now and hopefully justice would work itself out in some afterlife. It must have been hard for them to think, but beyond all of this, God is in control. But I think that's what this narrative tells us. Our God is the God of delays, of detours, and of disasters. And so we can expect those things. And as we encounter them, we can know this is not God losing control. God is in control, behind and above and beyond all of those things. That was my three Ds. I've got three OPs now. For rhetorical effect and to give me a chance of remembering what I'm going to be talking about. And these are more positive as well. So cheer up. First one is this. Our God is the God of optimism. Paul stands up on the ship. This is uh, 2721. After they had gone a long time without food, they, presumably being the sailors and the soldiers and everybody who wasn't, Paul and Luke and Aristarchus, who perhaps have been chowing down quite happily, after they had all gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Presumably in response to Paul's prayers. He's been praying for their lives, that they might all be preserved. So keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Now, you might think it's easy for Paul to be optimistic. An angel of the God he serves has been standing beside him and telling him that he is definitely going to get to Rome. But honestly, here's what I think. I think if I was in this situation and in the night an angel came and said, Don't worry. You're going to get to Rome and going to spare the lives of all these people. My instinctive reaction would be to think, well, that was a funny dream. And I noticed that the hurricane's still going on and we're all still probably going to drown. See, I don't think the angel actually makes it, in some ways, any easier to be optimistic. But Paul is optimistic because he knows that God is in control. And he believes that what God has said he will do, he will do. And the interesting thing about Paul is, of course, that had no angel come and stood before him, and had his life been absolutely in the balance, 
and he had no idea whether he was going to live or die, well, we know what Paul would have said in that situation, because he was in that situation when he was writing some of the New Testament letters. And he wrote, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He said, I don't know which will be better. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. But I can see that there is helpful and useful work to do here, and so for your sake I would rather stay. See, Paul's optimism fundamentally isn't based on whether the ship is going to survive or not. It is based on knowing a trustworthy God who is in control and who has revealed his love to him in Christ. And on that basis, he can stand up in front of all these sailors and say, have something to eat. It's going to be fine. It's a serious rebuke to me, to be honest, as a, as a person who finds it very, very easy to be pessimistic. To believe in the God who is sovereign is to be optimistic. Not in a kind of airbrushing all of the bad details of life out of the way sort of fashion, but knowing that even in those details, however horrible they may be, the good God is overruling. Our God is the God of optimism. He's also the God of opportunity. Okay, Paul didn't want to go to Malta. Nobody wanted to go to Malta. But here he is on Malta, and what is going to happen to him? Well, two things happen to him. He gets bitten by a snake. That's not in itself very good. But he doesn't die. Um, I find it personally quite comical, the way, and I think Luke does as well, I think that's the way he writes it. So, he gets bitten by this snake, the locals say, oh, he must be a bad man, and justice is caught up with him, bitten by a snake. And then he actually says, they waited a long time. I, I imagine the horse standing around. Is he... Is that a bit swollen? And then after a long time, they don't conclude, oh, maybe he wasn't a murderer after all. And they don't conclude, maybe it wasn't a venomous snake. They conclude, he must be a guard. As I mentioned, these people weren't exactly at the centre of civilization. This has happened to Paul before, of course, when he's ventured out into the countryside. He's been accused of being a god. And I think we can assume, although Luke doesn't mention it, that he does hear what he did there. He says, no, I'm not a god. And actually, he gets this huge opportunity to go and stay with the leading man of the island, Publius, to heal his father, and then to heal many others on that island. And I think, again, we can assume, although it's not mentioned here, that he preached as well. At the very least, he healed in the name of Jesus. And so these people heard something of the gospel. Church tradition says that the, uh, the church in Malta started at this point. Um, and if you go to Malta, you can see many dubious relics uh, relating to this. But it is quite likely, I think, that there were converts from this unexpected visit. And so 
a place to which Paul would probably never have gone. Bear in mind that Paul's basic evangelistic strategy was to go to the big cities and evangelise there so that the gospel could gradually spread out into the countryside. It would have been a long time following that strategy before anybody wound up in Malta. God wanted to save people in Malta. And so he creates an opportunity out of a disaster and turns a shipwreck into a chance for people to hear about Christ and receive eternal salvation. Our sovereign God is a God of opportunity. He makes stuff happen. Again, that's a challenge to me because I ask, how much am I on the lookout for those things? How much do I expect God to create opportunity? How much, when I see opportunity staring me in the face, um, do I dodge it for the sake of my own comfort and ease? But then sixthly, and this one's from a heading point of view slightly forced, our God is the God of the optimal outcome. And so we came to Rome. Paul gets where he was going. He gets there. He will stand before Caesar. History tells us that eventually a Caesar, whether it was this one or another one, will kill him. But he'll get his trial and he will preach the gospel in Rome as he had planned and as he had wanted to do. God brings that about for Paul. And on the way, he brings it about that many people who wouldn't have been saved otherwise were saved. And he brings it about that Paul arrives um, on a boat which is well supplied because the people of Malta are generous. God brings about the optimal outcome for Paul. Now again, we need to bear this in mind. Had Paul drowned in the surf off of Malta, had he died... Had the natives of Malta reacted badly to the gospel and killed him, Paul would no doubt still have wanted us to see that as the optimal outcome. God does the best, always the best. The best for Paul, the best for God's work through Paul, is that he get to Rome and stand before Caesar, and therefore he will get to Rome. If the best for Paul and the best for God's work through Paul had been that he die a martyr on Malta or that he drown in the sea, that's what would have happened. And Paul would have said, it is the best thing because I have Christ, whether I live or die. That's what God's sovereignty means. It means going by routes that we wouldn't have expected in a time frame that we wouldn't have chosen with things happening to us that we would have avoided if we possibly could but all of it being driven to the best outcome for us and for God's glory and all of it taking us through paths which bring opportunities that we would never have come across by ourselves and by our own plans. God is sovereign. And Luke's little travel diary tells us that. 
And I think all that we really learn from this, because all that we really learn, it's quite a big thing, is that our God is the God who reveals himself in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ, for the joy set before him, went to the cross, endured horrific things, but it was for the best. And that is the way God works. And Luke wants us to see that that is the way God worked in Paul's life. That's why we've had this long story of a journey up to Rome, which in many ways mirrors Luke's story of Jesus' journey up to Jerusalem. As Jesus had to go up to Jerusalem, so Paul has to go up to Rome. And he has to go by this convoluted and difficult route. And it will be for the best, for God's glory. The real question for us, out of this whole travel narrative, is very simple. Is God trustworthy? Is God deserving of our trust? And again, narrative helps us, because look, if I just read a sentence that made the doctrinal statement God is trustworthy, and said, is God trustworthy? You would all say, yes, God is trustworthy. It says God is trustworthy. That's great. But in the story, we're on the broken up ship. We're clinging to the plank being washed up the beach in Malta. And then the question, is God trustworthy, is a real question, a life question. And that is the way that question is going to hit us as we go through life. Stuff is going to happen in ways that we didn't expect. Is God trustworthy? Things are going to happen that we would have loved to avoid. Is God trustworthy? We are not going to be able to see God's purposes. Is he trustworthy? Can we trust him through this delay, this detour, even this disaster? And I believe, I firmly believe, that the only way we will do that is if we cling to Jesus Christ, who has personally endured the greatest disaster, the cross, for us, on our behalf, and has been raised as a display of God's trustworthiness, of his faithfulness to his people. Let's trust in him. Let's see in him the trustworthy God at work. And whatever shipwrecks we come across, whatever backward islands we wind up on, Malta's not too bad nowadays. Let's trust in God.